Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. Time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Robert Reed. Son, how can you walk down the street knowing that a big, thick, fat penis is hanging out of your mouth and everyone's thinking about it dripping with cum? That and more. But before that, I thought I'd read to you a few of these rave reviews we've gotten from people who have done the show before and who we sent copies of the book. They read it, they loved it, and they gave us these little blurbs to put on the book. The first is Ilana Glazer, the co-creator and co-star of Broad City. She said, Risk gives a platform to stories rarely heard, to people rarely represented, and their most insane experiences. This book pushes us to live lives that inspire inspire stories like these. And then there's this wonderful quote from John Hodgman of The Daily Show and the Judge John Hodgman podcast. Risk will move you to live fiercely and share your wildest truths. Now let me open up here. There's a fabulous one from Lisa Lampanelli. She says, powerful. The writers in Risk are unafraid to bear their souls. These stories prove that when you take a chance in storytelling and in life, anything can happen. So go to theriskbook.com and pre-order your copy or really wherever books are sold. Pre-order a few copies for yourself, for your friends, their fabulous gifts. We have the goal of getting about 2,000 pre-orders before July 17th, the day of the release, in order to maybe get onto the New York Times bestseller list. We have um, about 1,200 right now, so we've got a ways to go. Go to theriskbook.com, pre-order yours now, and then email me at kevin at risk-show.com. Let me know you pre-ordered, and I'll sing your name at the end of the show. Also, these days you can get practically everything on demand, like 
this podcast. You can listen when you want. So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? With Stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office right from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, using your own computer and printer. Then the mail carrier picks it up. Just click, print, mail, and you're done. Couldn't be easier. We've used Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio for years now, and we love it. And right now, you can use Risk for this special offer that includes up to $55 free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com. Enter Risk. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is the cure behind me now and we are calling this week's episode live from tampa we had such a fabulous time visiting tampa florida for the very first time as you will hear but before we start i want to give a little shout out to one of our Patreon patrons. Her name is Carmel Ann. Uh, she gave $25 or more per month. We always give a shout out when someone gives that much. But listen, if you have not heard last week's episode called Spitting in the Face of the Devil, oh my gosh, it's one of our best episodes ever. You gotta go listen to it. And then you should go to our Patreon to check out the check-in that Jeff Barr and I did. Jeff Barr is the episode editor of Risk, and we had a fabulous, fabulous conversation about what all goes into creating episodes of the show, a really in-depth fun exploration of Jeff's history working with Risk. You got to check that out. Anyone who gives $5 or more per month has access to those check-ins, those kind of behind-the-scenes chats that we do. And that one was recorded right after Jeff finished editing that extraordinary story spitting in the face of the devil. When you do hear a risk story that really makes an impression on you like that, go to social media, tell people about it. Go to the Risk Podcast Fans discussion page or Twitter uh, or uh, the comment section on our site and spread the word. Let us know how you felt about the story and tell other people where to find it. Let's jump into the Tampa show. In a little bit, you're going to hear from Jessica Pepper. But before that, Robert Reed, who you can find at fabulousrobertreed.com. Robert is a sculptor and a performance artist. And here he is now with a story we call Unconditional Love.
Hello. <laughs> um, I was born in 1961 in Arkansas, and I was raised pretty much in a small town in Missouri. And my parents were raised as hillbillies, so they really didn't know what gay meant or homosexual meant, and I really didn't know either because it wasn't on television or anything. But I did hear a rumor that there was a penis in the Sears catalog in the men's underwear section, and so I'd run to the bathroom and look like crazy for that all the time, and I, I never did find it. <laughs> but I did have a funny feeling when I would watch Lost in Space about the two older men, not Dr. Smith, but the brother and the father. And, um, and I even kind of had a crush on the cartoon guys from Johnny Quest, the, the father and, and the doctor on there. And I'll have to admit that I got a little giddy with the coach's voice on Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer claymation. But I knew something was different, but I, I really wasn't teased growing up. Somehow I got through puberty just fine. And um, I moved out as soon as I could at like 17 and a half or 18. As soon as I graduated from high school, I moved away. And I came back to see my parents one time. And my mother said to me, honey, what is this literature we found in your car? And I looked down and it was some gay magazines. And I was like, oh, I don't know, like somebody just, you know, some nut threw them in my car at a, at a stoplight. I don't, I don't even, I didn't even look at them. What are they? And she was like, well, honey, why don't you just tell us what's wrong? We love you. And, you know, we've known for a long time. And why don't you just tell us what's up? So I thought, well, now's the perfect time, right? So I said, mom, I'm, I've fallen in love with a man. So she took a deep breath and she sat down and she went, oh, thank God, I thought you were in love with a black woman. <laughs> and I just, I just looked at her and she said, she said, oh honey, I would, I would much rather you be the way you are than to bring home some foreign Korean woman to marry or something like that. And I was really confused. <laughs> and I didn't know how to react to that. And then she said, you know, would you just do me a favor and promise me that you don't want to ever become a woman, that you won't pose naked for pictures, and that you won't pierce your ear? <laughs> and I thought, wow, she's thought about this for quite a while. <laughs> And, you know, there's, there's a lot of conditions to this unconditional love she keeps throwing at me. So I decided right then and there that I'd only been gone a couple months. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to move back in and show them that I'm the same person that I was because they wanted me to I don't, go to a therapist or something. So I moved back in. And I was coming home one time and my very moralistic father stopped me in the hallway and he was like, son? I have something to ask you. And I was like, yeah, what? He was like, how can you walk down the street knowing that a big, thick, fat, 
penis is hanging out of your mouth and everyone's thinking about it dripping with cum. And I was stoned and startled. And I just, uh, I looked at him and I said, well, I don't really see a pussy on your face. And he shut up after that. He never, he never asked me again anything about that. But he, he did say, I, I don't want you to tell any of the neighbors, even though he hated all the neighbors. And um, if you come to the family Christmas reunion party that we have every year, you'll have to pretend that you have a girlfriend. So I just didn't go anymore, and I pretty much stayed alone. And well, like probably 10 years ago, my, my only sibling, my brother, called me and he said, well, you know, I'll have to say that at least I accepted you right away when you told me. And I was like, no, you didn't. <laughs> he goes, what do you mean? I said, you told me I'm your brother, I love you, but I really should beat the shit out of you. <laughs> and he hung up. So a couple of days later, he called me back and said, you know, you're so wrong. I would never, ever use those words. Never. I said I would beat the hell out of you. <laughs> and I was like, well, semantics. I'm, I'm still getting beat up, right? And I'm like, it, it just didn't sound right to me. So I decided that was a toxic environment and that I should get out of there. And um, so I moved, started moving to big cities, and I started making a lot of gay friends and working at places, and they, they really became my family. And so it was, you know, the late 80s, and things had started to change by that time, and like, Rock Hudson had died of AIDS, and that was coming to the forefront and getting more in the media. There, there still wasn't any Will and Grace or anything, but there was, uh, you know, Dynasty was popular, and there was a gay character on there, and so there, there was some things happening, and ACT UP was going on, and at different pride festivals are like, you know, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. You know, so I started feeling stronger and more relaxed and, you know, had a, a good group around me. So I decided, you know what, I, I do think I want to become a flight attendant. And I had, <laughs> I had been really afraid of that. And I, I wasn't afraid of flying at all. I was afraid of being in front of a group of people like you all and everyone just going like, oh, there's the stereotypical queer, you know, flight attendant up there. <laughs> and I decided, you know, I, I'm fine with that. So I went ahead and applied and I got hired by a major airline and they sent me to Washington DC and I was on probation for, for six months, which basically means you can get fired for any reason they want to until you're in the union. So I was on probation and crew schedule call and they were like, flight attendant Reed, we have an assignment for you in the middle of the night, of course. And they said I had a long layover in West Palm Beach, Florida. But I was actually really excited because my best friend had also moved from Missouri to Fort Lauderdale. And he worked at a toy store at that time. And he was kind of like Jim Carrey mixed with Tigger and looked like Bam Bam. And he would do cartwheels down the aisle when you'd go to the store and be like, you know, and he was so much fun. 
So I, I couldn't wait to see him. And he said, you know what? The company gave me a new van that um, I, can, I can use, and I'll just pick you up at the airport, and we'll go to a gay bar, and you can bring your luggage, and you can change there, and we'll have happy hour and catch up, and then from there we'll go out. So I was like, cool. So I showed up at the airport, and he picked me up, and we went to this dive bar in, in West Palm Beach that is still there, actually. But I started changing out of my uniform into like my uh, tank top of neon B-52s, because it, uh, <laughs> it was 1989. And I was changing into that in my tie-dyed jean shorts that I had made. And he got out of the side door of the van to have a cigarette. And there was like two or three cars or so in the parking lot. It wasn't really crowded, but we were just going to catch up anyway. And all of a sudden, he was like, oh, my God, it's, so, it's getting so crowded. And I looked outside, and there was a whole carload of young guys coming in, and then another one, and then another one. And this huge lump just went up in my throat of fear that I, I couldn't even hardly speak. And I said, Scotty, get in the car. And he he was like, no, it's really good. There's a lot of cute guys here. And I said, Scotty, get in the damn van. And all of a sudden, one of them got out, and they punched him so hard that he went flying inside the van and hit the wall next to me. And then before I knew it, there were so many guys grabbing at me and pulling at my legs and trying to pull me out of the van that I, I couldn't even see. It was like a big mass of, of people, and I felt like such an object, and they were pulling at me, and then I, I felt like cold metal on my face, making me bleed, and I kept trying to get away, and I didn't know how to operate that new door, and I kept trying and trying, and I thought, you know, I could kick him right in the nose and make him bleed, but if I do, they're just going to get more and more pissed off, so... So I better not do that. So I, I just kept struggling and struggling, and they were pulling at me. And finally, I looked up, and this guy's face was right in my face. And he smelled like he had just done a shot or something. And he had just black eyes that was like the like Rosemary's baby in the last scene when you, you see the demon child. There was just like nothing there. And I... I didn't know what was going to happen to me. Are they going to shred me to pieces? or Because there were just so many of them. So I, somehow I struggled and I, I closed the door. And at that point, I hugged Scotty and we were crying and we just had like such a, we felt safe for a second. And then all of a sudden, crack, crack, crack. And we noticed that they were taking bats and they were bashing the windows and they were, the, you know, it was coming through. And then they had machetes and they were stabbing at the tires and popping all the tires. And there was like 20 different guys and we were screaming and we didn't know what was going on. And I know Scott was worried about his, probably his new van from the company. And, and we thought we were probably going to die. And we were just crying and screaming and hugging each other. And they were yelling, you faggots, we're going to kill you, you little faggots. You motherfuckers, we're going to get at you and we're going to kill you. I grabbed him and we fell against the horn and it just went wah and somehow that sound made people come from outside of the bar and that made the cars leave so they each took off one by one really hurriedly and the the van was demolished and I was all cut up and they were knocking on the window and saying you know it's okay why don't you come in there was like four or five people and so we went inside the bar, and the bartender said, well, you know, I need to call the police and get an ambulance for you because you're pretty cut up. And I said, okay. So he called the police, and these 
other older gentlemen were like, you know, probably regulars there, and they were just saying, this has never happened here, and calm down, it's all gonna be okay, you're safe now, and blah, 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 and just relax, just relax. And so they call the police, and the bartender said, they wanna know what is the make of the car, and what is the license plate number? And I said, three white medium cars, because I'm not a car person, so I have no idea. They were just three white medium-sized cars to me. So he said, well, I think you need to come out here and make a report and send an ambulance, please, because one of them's pretty cut up, which meant me. So he hangs up the phone, and he had given us a couple drinks, and we were just nervously downing them. And then he put his hand on top of mine, and he said, listen, like we really, they really want to know what kind of car that was and license plate, and I'm sure it's lodged in your brain somewhere. And I'm also a hypnotist. So he said, why don't I clean you up and we'll hypnotize you and we'll get those numbers out of you. And I was like, mm, I don't think it's going to work on me. And he's like, no, 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 it's going to work. It's going to be fine. So he takes me into the bathroom and um, he pulls off his new swatch and he leans me up against the wall and he's moving it real slow and he's like, look at the swatch, honey. Look at the swatch. They're having a white sale at Burdines and the Galleria Mall. And you're going down the escalator. And they're having a sale on 1,000 count Egyptian cotton. And there's beautiful crystals and Gianni Versace window. And you're just amazed by it. And I grabbed his hand. I said, what the fuck? Like, this, this gay hypnotism shit isn't working on me at all. I almost got killed, you know? And my shirt was ripped and everything, and I was a lot younger. So I was 28, actually, at the time. And so he started massaging me, and he started saying, just relax, just relax. You're way too tight. You're not going to remember any of this unless you relax. So he started massaging my shoulders and saying, relax, and starting to massage my arms and saying, we'll get through this. And then I noticed he was cleaning my face and making it stop bleeding. And then he was cleaning my nipple, which wasn't even cut <laughs> for quite a long time. And then he grabbed my crotch and I was like, you motherfucker, what are you doing? Like, I, what are you doing? Like sex, he was cute, but that was the last thing <laughs> on my mind and the last gay bartender that ever came on to me. But. Um, I just kind of shut away. Luckily, the policeman came in right then. And he goes, what's going on? And I said, well, my friend and I were gay bashed. And, you know, we were, they beat up the van really bad. And uh, he's sitting outside. And he said, why don't you come out? So we went outside. He got the information from Scotty, where he lived and stuff. And he came up to me. And he said, what's your name? And where do you live? And I said, I live at 1512 Swan Street in Washington, D.C. And he said, well, what city do you live in? I said, well, I live in Washington, D.C. And he goes, I know what state you live in. What city do you live in? And I was like, I live in Washington, D.C., where the White House is. It's on this coast. And I was just flabbergasted because, you know, it's, he worked for the government. And he was, so the cop kind of copped an attitude with me after that. And, um, but he did take down the information. And then he was like, you know what? this is the third gay bar that I've been to that this happened this afternoon. And I said, well, there's only four in the city that I know of. Like, why don't you go to the next one? And he said, why? And I said, well, because obviously this is a hate crime. 
And he said, what's that? And he was black. And I was like, really? You, like, I couldn't even address it because I, you know, it was really in the media right then what a hate crime was and stuff. So he took off and the ambulance driver came in and he came up to me and he said, who called? And I said, well, actually the bartender called, but I had this laceration across my face and some scrapes on me and he just didn't know if I needed stitches or whatever. And he went back to his van, to the ambulance and he grabbed some band-aids and he goes, put a band-aid on it, buddy. And I, he threw them at my face. And then he took off, so I think he thought I had AIDS or something. But Scotty and I decided to go back to my hotel and just try to calm down, and they towed the van away. And we didn't sleep very well that night, but I was still on probation, and I was new, and I was afraid I'd get fired if I called in sick. So I went back the next day to the airport, and I had a new crew, and I had a big black eye and bandages all over my face. And so I thought, well, I probably should say something to the cockpit, you know. So I went up there and I told them exactly what happened. And the captain kind of looked out the window and looked out the other window. And the first officer looked at the floor and he looked at the ceiling. And, and I was just standing there. And finally, I got uncomfortable. And so I just walked away. And when I walked away, the flight crew showed up. And this female flight attendant came up to me and she was going, oh, honey, what's wrong? What's wrong? And she was hugging me and like, oh, my God. She started bawling. She's like, oh, the same thing happened to my brother last week. And he got beat up with chains and he's going to be on crutches for the rest of his life. And, and she was just inconsolable. So I knew that you had to get the drink out in 18 minutes. So I thought, well, I'll just do her job. And she was just crying away. So I went out there with my black eye and bandages and I went up to the first business person and I was like would you like something to drink and he looked me right in the face and said what's the matter buddy did your girlfriend beat you up <laughs> so I just kind of rolled my eyes and went to the next customer and about two weeks later I ran into that same flight attendant and I was so excited I was like oh my god I can't believe it's you it's like you were there when this happened and you know people don't believe me that I went through this and you know and still worked and blah 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 and and I'm just so happy to see you and she looked at me and she was and I asked, said well how's your brother and she looked at me and she said I don't know who you are and how did you know my brother was hurt and I just felt vacant again, like it, it just happened all over again. And like nobody understood. And so at 50 years old, I decided to go back and get my master's degree at University of Hawaii and, yeah, uh, in art. And I, I kind of zeroed in on performance art. And I did this as a performance using plush toys and a bat for the attackers and at the end of the story I would always kind of start crying because unfortunately I've, I've lost my friend Scotty to AIDS about 15 years ago he was one of the two percent that couldn't handle the pills and he passed away so it always makes me think of him so I was crying and a couple people came up to me and they hugged me and they said we're so sorry you know that this happened to you and blah 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 and then a couple people raised their hand and I said yeah and they said well who did, who did this happen to? Is this a real story? And I was like, yeah, it happened to me, you know? And they said, well, that was a long time ago. Like, thank God that doesn't happen anymore. And I was like, really? Like, it had just happened in Honolulu like two weeks and been all over the news about 
a couple of girls being beaten up leaving this bar and they were shocked by that and I was flabbergasted that they didn't believe that it still went on and as a matter of fact this year I was just on a layover in London and this lesbian got attacked by a guy with a cordless drill that who drilled inside her skull several times and she's still alive thank God but it it, it does still happen and the thing with hate crimes is the LGBTQ community is at a much, much, much higher risk than anybody else. It happens to all different groups and genders and, and races, and, but it's much higher with the LGBTQ community. And so we need to keep being aware of that and, and just watch out. And I hope everybody has a really safe Gay Pride Month. And just have fun. Thank you. Now, typically, this is when you'd sit through some boring safety demonstrations. Oh, snooze fest. But we like to do things a little different around here. We sure do. Someone give us a beat. Anyone. I mean, I used to beatbox in college, but I don't know if I can still ever, ever. <laughs> All right. Mm, that's nice. 1250C is a real fun flight. We'll be soaring through the sky like a big old cat. Fasten your seat belts and pull them tight. And don't unbuckle if you see that line. If you happen to be seated in the exit row, there's a couple of things we think you should know. Your closest exit may be to the back. And the afterlife is just a void of black. Oh, They deserve to know. I will not be silent. What happened to you, Gary? I woke up, Sabrina. I woke the hell up. I'm going to tell a story that no one can relate to. It's about being 18. Uh, the first time I fell in love, I was 18. I was a late bloomer. I don't know if you can tell. Probably not. Uh, but I worked in a Japanese hibachi restaurant. I wore a kimono and uh, socks with flip-flops. It's very appropriate. And uh, his name was Jason. It's very exotic. And he wore a silk button-down with flames on it, like Guy Fieri. let it sink in uh, he had shaggy dark hair ripped jeans and a white Hanes t-shirt and he wore it every day my friends called him Pearl Jam yeah so obviously I was in love with him deeply and uh, I would pretend that he was my boyfriend before he became my boyfriend. And I would tell people, we'd have like these like fake dates. It's, it's normal. And uh, it turns out that he liked me too. Uh, but what he was doing was reading a lot of books because um, I'm real smart. I'm a real smart person. And he was like, she's too smart for me, so I gotta learn some stuff. Which at the time, I thought that was 
super romantic. Uh, but as an adult, that seems really sad and insecure. So he read up on string theory and he tried to wow me with his thoughts on spaghettification. And it worked. Uh, so we started dating and it was magic, obviously. And we did a lot of 18-year-old things. We went camping. Uh, we went to, there's a beautiful spring, I don't know how many of you are from Florida, called Blue Hole. It's a romantic name. Blue Hole. And we went there together. And we went to Six Flags in Atlanta, Georgia. Road trip out of state without my mom. Guess who broke a bed from jumping on it? This guy. We fixed it with duct tape. It's fine. We didn't get charged. But he had a twin brother, Jason. He had a twin brother named Danny. Also romantic. And Danny was dating my friend Katie, so it was perfect. It was a foursome. We did everything together, double dates every night, nonstop. They were with us at Six Flags. The four of us were jumping on that bed. <laughs> and we did all sorts of stuff together, and it was great. Um, we made a lot of pillow forts during hurricanes. I don't know if anyone's ever had a hurricane party. Yeah. You barbecue in the rain, you drink a lot of cheap beer, and you wait till the lights go out, and that's when the fun starts. And by that I mean we ate a lot of Twizzlers. Yeah, 18. Uh, cheap beer, we drank a lot of that too. Except for Jason, Jason did not, he did not drink, he did not smoke, he did not do drugs. I did. But he did not, he was straight edge, y'all remember straight edge? Boom. Triple X, not touching it. He didn't drink. And then he did. Spoiler. His parents had a party one night. It was a big backyard luau. Lays, grass skirts. And they wanted to do a family shot, because that's how people bond in Pinellas Park. We do shots. If I could be barefoot right now, I would be. So they were like, let's do a shot. So they gave his brother a shot. They gave me a shot. 18, remember, quality parenting. And they're like, come on, you, you know, you, you do a shot as well. And he was like, no, I'm good, it's fine. It's not a big deal. And they're like, don't be a pussy. Do the fucking shot. It was a tough one because it was apple pucker. He was scared. But he did it, you know? He tossed it back, family, bonding blood and it went down really smooth he loved it and then when we were out with people and we'd go to parties and we'd go dancing and people would hand him a beer and he'd go eh that's fine I'll drink this one I'll drink that one uh, and then he started drinking all the time and it wasn't as fun anymore and he went from being like tousled hair sexy pearl jam to like crying on the floor guy <laughs> and I thought this is a problem <laughs> so we talked about it 
And then he broke up with me in my front yard like a week before our one year anniversary. Oh, I know. Yeah, he said, uh, you make me feel dead inside. Yeah, and drinking makes me feel alive. That hurt. Fortunately for me, his twin brother Danny also dumped my friend at the same time. So I had a buddy and we could commiserate and we made each other sad mixtapes and we sang a lot of dashboard confessional. Mm. When I say sing, I mean we screamed in at the top of our lungs while crying. But we were, we were together, you know, we had it, we were together, we had a thing. And my brother took care of me. I called him as soon as it happened. I was like, he broke my heart. And my brother was out with his friends because he's a normal person. And he was like, you guys, that son of a bitch broke my sister's heart, we gotta go. And they all came back and they awkwardly patted me on the back and they were like, you're probably fine, I don't. Stop. It was nice. It was nice. But it was hard. We cried a lot. I was super pathetic. Um, and we'd try to go do normal stuff. We'd go to the movies and we'd like cry and have to leave. And then we'd go normal places. Like we went to Europe. <laughs> cried at the Coliseum. So that was cool. Uh, and you know like that hurts right your first heartbreak it hurts it sucks it's never gonna get any better couldn't get any worse (gasps) but then it did (laughs) spoiler they started dating immediately two girls that we did not know but we learned about through MySpace (laughs) they became one and two on the top eight Daniela and Bailey. Boo, right? Yeah, oh my God, you guys met them? Did you know them? So they took a lot of pictures of doing cool stuff with my boyfriend, and they were drinking, and they were partying, they were doing some drugs. And then I started getting these weird phone calls late at night, and at first I thought maybe it was like a wrong number, and I would hear far off voices, and then I would hear my name, and my friend's name, and I would hear Jason's name, and then I realized that it was those two girls, and they called me on purpose, and they were making fun of me, and they were saying how pathetic I was, and how ugly I was, and how gross I was, and they would laugh, and then they would make fun of us some more, and I would cry a little bit more, Also, it was like two in the morning, so it's like, you're really emotional at that time. So I thought that was pretty bad, right? Like, it couldn't get any worse. And then I woke up one day, and I was late for school, and I was running and went to University of Tampa. Yeah, thank you. I was an art major, don't clap. And I was running late, so I didn't really notice that there were some red streaks on my truck. I drove a truck, y'all. Yeah, thank you. Uh, 
And it wasn't until I got out of class that I realized that there was spaghetti sauce all along the side of my car and a big old splat on the driver's side door where a meatball had been. And I was like, that's weird. And I happened to call my friend, Katie, who had been also dumped. And I said, this is the weirdest thing. Somebody threw a meatball at my car while I was at school. And she said, that's weird because when I went to my car in the morning, there was a Caesar salad on the hood. Two and two, put them together. Appetizer, entree, double whammy. They got us. Late at night, date night, leftovers, exes. Insult to injury. So that was bad, right? Like, now I'm getting made fun of. They're calling me. They're making fun of me. They're throwing Italian delights at my car. (laughs) Woke up another night or another morning. Don't wake up at night. (laughs) We all make mistakes, guys. Woke up in the morning, run into my truck. Got to go to school. And there is a dead bird. Ooh. Yeah. Dead bird. Maybe it's coincidental, guy in the front. (laughs) I'm not a psychic. I don't know anything. Here's the thing, though. Dead bird, face down, wings out, single hole in the back of its head. No blood, no guts, execution style. Weird. I go to school. It's fine. Talking to Katie later. Strangest thing, dead bird. Boom, execution style. She went, funny you should mention that because I found a dead bird on my doorstep this morning as well. No blood, no guts, single hole. Coincidental guy in the front row? Maybe, maybe. 100% possible. There is no conclusion to that. Maybe we both have very accurate stray cats. (laughs) You never know. Anyway, in the midst of all this, we have some dude friends and they're like, these guys are stupid. Let's go party, fuck them. And I was like, yeah, fuck them, fucking jerks. Who needs them, stupid. And so we decide we're going to go dancing, right? We're going to go dance it out. So we go. We get in the car. We stop for gas. And like a, like a movie, they roll up next to us in their SUV. Music blaring windows down, having a great time. And they do like this whole slow motion hair flipping thing. I don't know how they did it. <laughs> and my guy friends are like, it's fine. We'll, we'll run interference, right? Like, if they mess with you, we'll mess with them. Like, fucking, we'll fuck them up. I'm like, yeah, totes. We're gonna fight them. <laughs> so we let them go first, get a head start, and we're like, they'll go in, they'll get checked in, we don't have to drive Tokyo Drift fast and furious against them on the Howard Franklin, it'll be fine, like, they'll go, it's fine. And we de- decide, you know, like, should we go? Should we even go? Should we bother? I don't know. We, I don't know. Let's, let's just, we'll go. We'll go. It's fine. We'll go. And one of the guys in the front 
says, you know, those guys really suck. Do you want me to kill them for you? And I said, no. You know, I don't want anyone to die. That's excessive. But I would not mind if they got into a terrible car accident. (laughs) Totally normal thing to say. So we take off. We're going. It's the on-ramp to get onto the interstate, and it sort of curves out and around over the other lanes. And as we're driving, we see headlights facing the wrong direction. And we think there's a wrong-way driver because that happens a lot here. And we're like, oh, no. So we pull over, and we wait for them to pass, but they're not moving. It's just a car stopped in the middle. And it took about two seconds before we realized whose car it was. And everybody in my car turned and looked at me like I was a witch. (laughs) And they're like, what the fuck did you do? And I was like, I didn't didn't think it would be like an instant. Like, I thought maybe later (laughs) you'd hit like a beefy squirrel and like spin out. I don't like... (laughs) I should have been more specific. That's my fault. So we think about it. We're 18. We're assholes. And we're like, should we stop? Do we keep going? Do we, we, we'll call it in. We'll phone it in, right? But we'll keep going and be like, well, you know, karma. We, we, you know, we discuss it and we decide we should stop. So we do and we get out. I get out and I went to a medical magnet high school. So, and I watch a lot of Grey's Anatomy, y'all. So I know about half a percent more about uh, emergency response than most people. I know words like, Salpingo oophorectomy. Yeah, nobody needed one of those. (laughs) They were fine. But I run over there, and the first person I find is the driver, a girl I didn't know, and she's very small, and she's tugging at her fingers. And I realize it's because her fingers are starting to swell because everything is broken. You can tell by looking, and she's trying to get the rings off. And I was like, maybe don't do that. That, that elevate and the swelling I don't know so I like sit her down I'm like you're good I got you and then one of the girls Daniela who's been tormenting me and taking a lot of selfies with her sidekick (laughs) and just the worst she starts holding my hand and she's sort of daydreaming and she's like hey have you seen my phone I was like, no, I haven't seen your phone. And then I look over and I see one of my friends from the car and he's like picking through the rubble of like books and clothes and glass and he actually picks up her phone and he goes, eh, and then he tosses it into the woods and he's like, hey, because we're still 18 and we're still fucking jerks. But I was like, I don't know where your phone is, sweetheart, but I called an ambulance, and you're good, and mama's got you, and let's, you know, we're going we're gonna to work this out. So I collect her, and I collect Bailey, and I get everybody, and I'm like, all right, we got, everything's fine, the police are coming. And then I see a girl on the ground, and she's unconscious, and she's got a gash from her hip to her knee that's the size of a football of just meat missing. And I can see her bone, and I'm like, oh, God. And I love horror movies, you guys. Side note, love them. Uh, and I've always been super critical. Like, horror movies are not right. You know, the blood is wrong. The color's wrong. The consistency's wrong. Like, this is fake. But this is the first time that I'm seeing this much blood coming out of a human person. And I thought, they really nailed that. They got that. 
they're right. That is just like that. That is 100% correct. I will never question anybody again. My bad. So I take Daniela and I say, you know, please sit down with your friend and you're going to hold pressure here and you're going to stop some of this blood and I'm going to help some other people and it's going to be fine. You know, I'm controlling the situation. I'm assessing. I'm helping. Salpingoleuferectomies for everybody. Google it later. It'll be way funnier. Slow burn. And I see Jason, and he is doing some weird screaming at the sky, punching the windows, and he sees me and he goes, of course you're fucking here. And I went, I gotta go. (laughs) So I went back to my friends, and we cried a little bit, and we hugged each other a little bit, and we were like, oh, this is so traumatic, and there's like blood on my hands, and there's blood on my clothes, and I was like, ah, I don't know what to do with this. And then one of my friends goes, did you see what Daniela was wearing, though? Like, <laughs> cowboy boots with shorts. Like, what a dick. <laughs> and that made me feel better, because uh, she, she did look pretty bad. Uh, and nobody said thank you for, like, hey, thanks for helping out or jumping in or you know nobody even acknowledged that we were ever there we might as well have been ghosts in that situation but they stopped calling and there were no more entrees in my truck and there were no more dead animals showing up and things started to quiet down so I took that as sort of a truce and a while after that Jason called me at three in the morning And it turns out after the accident, things got really heavy for him, and he turned from drinking into things like cocaine and heroin and, you know, fun stuff. And he called me, and he was wasted, and he said, I need you to meet me in a bingo parking lot. I said, no, thank you. And he said, if you do not come to the bingo parking lot, I'm going to come to your house, and I'm going to scream your name at the top of my lungs until everyone wakes up and your parents are going to be mad at you. And I was like, I can't have that. So I went to the bingo parking lot late at night, like a safe person does. But I waited on the outskirts with my lights off to see if there was like an ambush, right? Or if somebody was gonna like jump me or like what was happening and he was alone. So finally I went over to him and I sat on the front of my car and he was super strung out, pacing back and forth, rambling incoherently. Uh, But he kept eating Cadbury eggs. Yeah, where did you get those? It was like the middle of summer. (laughs) Well, one after another, just pounding Cadbury eggs. And as he's taking bite, like, he's not eating the whole thing, he's taking bites. So as he takes a bite, it, like, the gooey center strings out, and it's, like, landing in his disheveled heroin beard. And he looks crazy, and he's like, do you want to make out a little bit? And I was like... No, thank you. Because I'm polite. And then he starts, you know, he's rambling, but in, in the middle of all the rambling, he says, you know, I was really mad that night at the car accident when I saw you there. I didn't want you to be there. And I was like, yeah, I didn't want to be there either. It was terrible. And I was like, I'm really sorry that that happened to you. And he said, uh, it's okay. It's not like it was your fault. Thank you.
behind the house The ground has opened up and it's so deep A hole, its bottom can't be found It sucks the air inside And makes quiet sea sound Sometimes stand and linger at the edge We like to dare each other How close we can get And there's a pact we made If one should fall, the other follows in This is Risk. This is Glenn Phillips behind me now. <laughs> oh my Christ. What what noises am I making? Okay, this is Risk. This is Glenn Phillips that we're hearing behind me now. And we just heard from Jessica Pepper, who you can find at jessicapepper.com. Now, people, a lot of folks say that they wish I wouldn't talk so much between the stories or before the stories on the show. And when I say people, I mean me. I mean me talking to everyone else who works on the show. I'm never not complaining about how much talking I have to do. (sighs) Because we're running a business here and we have a lot of stuff to announce. But did you know that on Patreon, you can get ad-free episodes of Risk? Anyone who's giving us $10 a month or more on Patreon does not have to listen to so many of the announcements that I make for the, you know, sort of housekeeping part of the show or the ads for stamps and all that sort of thing. We love our advertisers, but we understand a lot of people love to listen to the show without all that. And you can find the ad-free episodes at patreon.com slash risk. Also, you can celebrate July 4th right now with a premium foam mattress designed, assembled, and manufactured in the USA. Lisa leveraged 30-plus years of experience and hundreds of hours of testing to develop the perfect mattress for all body shapes and sleeping styles. Lisa's mission is to provide a better night's sleep for everybody. Through their 110 program, they donate one mattress for every 10 they sell. That's more than 26,000 mattresses and counting. Lisa strives to leave the world better than they found it, but that doesn't stop with mattress donations. Together with the Arbor Day Foundation, Lisa plants one tree for every mattress they sell and are committed to planting one million trees by 2025. I have a Lisa mattress, the best goddamn mattress I've ever slept on. I get the best sleep on this mattress. It is so firm and yet so comfortable. The Lisa July 4th mattress sale won't last long. Get $160 off a Lisa mattress at leesa.com slash risk today. That's lisa.com slash risk for $160 off, Lisa, a better place to sleep. 
Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from writer Paul Wilborn. Paul has a collection of short stories that is being published this fall called Cigar City Confidential. You can find out more about that at wilbornwrites.com. Here is Paul now with a story we call The Street Poet of Hyde Park. Ground is opened up. Michael O'Connor. He was the street poet of Hyde Park, that lovely, stately old neighborhood by the bay. He was the seventh child of an Irish Catholic family and a lot of people believed mom should have stopped at six. (laughs) Michael was beautiful, but Michael was broken. We became friends. He opened a lot of doors for me. And then a few years later, at age 28, as a direct result of something I did, Michael was dead. I've been thinking a lot about Michael as I'm getting ready to tell this story, and I kind of, you, you go around, Am I guilty of killing him, or am I guilty of something worse? Here's the story. Starts as the 80s are given way to the 90s. I've just been hired as a reporter at the St. Petersburg Times. Now, this was still the heyday of newspapers, and the Times was one of the best in the country. It was just incredible. They had a whole stable of the best journalists in town. They were winning Pulitzer Prizes. I was a new guy. I wasn't a star, but I had ambition. I was going to be a star. All I needed was the right story. And then one day I'm driving up Fowler Avenue and the right story appears in the form of a disheveled guy standing at 22nd Street holding a sign, a cardboard sign that says, I'll work for food. Now you've seen a million of those signs, right? But there had to be a first sign. And This was 1991. It was the first sign I'd ever seen, and I was a guy who got paid to be observant. Now, a lot of stuff was going on in the country at this point. AIDS was wiping out a whole generation of gay men. The savings and loan scandal was going on, and over in the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev was parting the Iron Curtain. But there was one story that wasn't getting any coverage, and it was about this dam that broke somewhere in the United States in the 80s and rushing out from this dam were thousands and thousands of human beings. People with no job and no future and no future plans. They were drunk or drugged or crazy or just lost. And they were on the streets and they were living among us but they weren't really part of us. They were sort of over here you ever hear that that story it's like the old fairy tale there's this medieval village where it's got a wall around it and inside everybody is really safe and secure but right outside the village there's this dark forest and nobody leaves the village to go in the dark forest because the people who live in there they're like wild they're untamed i stopped and talked to that guy with the sign and about two hours later I'm literally in the woods where 20 men are camping out one mile from a major shopping mall. 
And I thought, I found my story. And I know to tell it, I've got to go deeper into that dark forest. And it was pretty funny. I realized as I was going in, it was a little like Dorothy going down the yellow brick road. I kept picking up all these wild and crazy characters to come with me. And every step I took, I was getting closer to Michael O'Connor. And he was getting a little bit closer to the end of his life. First guy I met, Davis. Davis was a refugee of the crack cocaine wars in Chicago. He'd seen his brother gunned down on the street right in front of him and decides, I need to get on that bus. He was heading for Miami, but something happened. He got tossed off in Tampa. He says, Paul, I thought I was getting away from all of this, but it's followed me here. And unfortunately now, he was homeless. I met Leonard. Leonard was about five feet tall. He was kind of like the Michelin man. He was flamboyantly gay. He was Native American. He wore tweed three-piece suits, summer and winter. And they were so tight, they showed off that he had a perpetual hard-on. <laughs> when he wasn't drunk, Leonard could play the piano just like his idol, Liberace. Paul, will you look at that house? Will you look at that car? It was, it was the afternoon, and we're at the Tampa Public Library, and Leonard is turning through his favorite book. It's the book of Liberace's Las Vegas mansion. Color photos. That morning, we'd been to the hub, and he bought a little pint, and then we'd walk down to a department store where he went through the fragrance counter and spritzed himself with every kind of free fragrance. I don't know why people just want to stop with one. <laughs> I met Kavanaugh Murphy III. <laughs> Kavanaugh was tall, he was regal, he was a World War II vet. He had been an advisor to Governor Jimmy Carter in Georgia, but black depression, treated with boatloads of whiskey, had led him to a street corner on Bush Boulevard where he held a sign and he slept in rent-by-the-week apartments on Nebraska Avenue. And sharing those little rooms with him were crack whores who he had taken in out of the goodness of his heart so he could nurse them back to health. And by nursing them back to health, I mean he fed them, he clothed them, he, he had a lot of sex with them. <laughs> and, and he also fell in love with them. And inevitably, when they got better, they'd take whatever money he had on his dresser and slip out, leaving him not only broke, but with a broken heart. Kavanaugh called me after Margot Yancey left him. Oh, sharper than a serpent's tooth to have a thankless child. Paul, I fought in many campaigns, but Margot was my Waterloo. I'm leaving the battlefield bloodied and bowed. Do not come looking for me. I will not be there. Good night, sweet prince. Good night. Now don't worry, he was dramatic, but not suicidal. <laughs> Finally, I met Michael O'Connor, the street poet of Hyde Park. He was tall, he was like razor thin, his eyes kind of danced when he talked, and his fingers sort of moved in the same way. And he peddled poetry outside the cash and carry on Swan Avenue with a line like this, hey, how about something to cleanse your mental pores? Something to take away those nasty wrinkles around your heart? Something to make you feel as young as the day you were born? It's a poem. It's a bouquet of nouns and verbs with a few late blooming adjectives thrown in. 
for color. None have ever heard it. No one else can own it. I give it to you and you alone. Certainly worth $10, don't you think? Five? And if you paid, you got something like this. Men are from Mars, bars, and women are from Klondike. We're different planets in the universal convenience store. I, I wait on the candy counter, stiff, wrapped, ready. And you, you're in the deep freeze. Your sugary places wrapped in silver. Can you feel it when your hard shell puckers? That's me calling. It goes on from there. With Michael, you did not get a haiku. You got a fucking epic. In this one, there's an earthquake, and the candy bar and the Klondike bar go sliding across the floor, smashing into one another until they're melting into a pool of thick, sweet cream. Thank you very much. Like you, the readers loved the street poet story. And better than that, my editors loved all of these outsider stories. I was getting noticed at the paper. I was becoming a star. Of course, there's always a catch. I saw these subjects as things I wrote about. These are people I covered. And when I wrote about them, I moved on to the next one. They didn't move on. I had spent three and four days with these people. I'd spend a week with them sometimes. They felt I was their friend. And they'd call me, Paul, where are you? I've got a great story for you. And I, you know, uh, yeah, maybe next week, I'm really busy, I, I'm on deadline. And they finally figured out I was just another you know, journalistic gigolo who had loved them and left them. When they finally knew that, then they started showing up to collect some alimony. Remember Davis, the crack, the crack guy? He's, he's, he walks up one day, he's right outside my car. He says, Paul, I met this girl and now my left nut is swollen up the size of a grapefruit. Can I get 50 bucks for the emergency room? Michael did not want my money, though he was happy for me to buy him beer and cigarettes whenever we were together. What he wanted me to do was love him like a friend, and he wanted me to see him as a writer, a real writer. Now, I loved his poetry, but he just saw that as what he did for a living. What Michael thought he was, was a novelist. And he would bring me this thick volume, his magnum opus, and I wish I could tell you that it was like a Tampa version of a confederacy of dunces, and he was sort of a genius in the rough, like John Kennedy Toole. But it was just a lot of words, single-spaced. And what he wrote one day didn't really seem to connect to what he wrote the next. Paul, what do you think? Do you think I can find an agent? Do you think maybe you could get me a publisher? Maybe the newspaper would publish this in installments. Michael, look, really busy. Uh, maybe next week I'll, I'll get this back to you. Got to run. And Michael finally got the message, too. It was over between us. But these characters, they stayed in my head. I was hanging out, Ybor City in the 80s, if you weren't here, it was all just artists and writers and painters and actors. And one of my actor buddies said, you know, you ought to take those characters and put them into a theater piece. I think they'd be really great. And so I went back to my notes 
and my tapes, and I crafted this whole series of monologues which each of these characters appeared and they began to speak. I needed something to tie it all together. So I thought, the street poet of Hyde Park, it'll be great. I created this character based on Michael, and in the play, he's broken in to the office of this horrible journalist. And he's gone to his computer late at night, and he's gonna free all of his friends who are trapped inside. All he needs is a password. Oh, password, Jesus. Uh, uh, fraud, cheat, user, phony. No. Ooh, what does he want? What does he want more than anything else? P-U-L-I-T-Z-E-R. Pulitzer. I'm in. He's in. All the characters come out. Oh, my God. I figure if I haven't talked to Michael in several years at this point, but I think, you know, he would love to see himself portrayed on stage. And in the play, he's the hero, and he's the real writer. And the guy who I've made the villain is me. I go around to his favorite haunts, I find him. I say, Michael, look, we're, we're gonna do this play, and you're in it, I've, I've gotta save a ticket for you. I'd really like for you to come and see it. He acted like we had never parted in a bad way. He hugged me, he smiled, he said, I'll be there. Any good actor will tell you, you show up early on opening night. I showed up early, and outside the theater was this giant commotion. There were like guards running with walkie-talkies, and people were screaming, and I, it turned out it was Michael who was screaming. I pushed through the crowd, and he was down on the ground. A guard had him down, and he was flailing. He says, I'm the street poet of Hyde Park. I'm the star of this show. You've got to let me in now. He calmed down a little when he saw me, and they were about to call the cops. I said, look, I'll get him home. I know where he lives, I'll get him home. I got him out, I got him to my car. He turned back into a sweet young guy. He says, Paul, I'm so sorry, I, I don't know what came over me, but I had to get it, they, they didn't realize who I was. Do they know who I am? We drove kind of quietly back to his place. He was living in Sulphur Springs at this point. He was. Always broke, but never homeless, because his family always made sure he had a place to live. We're driving, and there's a little store, and he says, Paul, uh, could you stop? I'm a little broke and maybe some beer. And we were just right back in our old routine. You know, he'd ask, I'd buy. So we went inside, and I was feeling particularly guilty. So I bought him, like, two six-packs of beer and several, a carton of cigarettes and two cans of Denty Moore beef stew, just hoping he'd eat a little bit. We get back to his place, and it's kind of smelly, like a wet dog. And sure enough, this little wet dog comes running out named Shelly. And I, it was named either after the poet or after his sister, who was named Shelly. I can't remember which. But the dog is licking him, and the dog's in his lap, and I feel better. I'm going to leave him, but I'm not going to leave him alone. I say, Michael, I'm so sorry you could not see the show, but I'll bring you the script. I'll do this show again, I know I will, and you'll, you'll be able to come. He pops open a beer and says, Paul, um, listen, could you just promise me you'll come back? I miss you, and look, please just come back. And I promise that I will. So we do the show three times that weekend. The audience goes wild. The street poet enters by tumbling out of a big trash can in the newspaper office. They love that. And at the end, every night, we got a standing ovation. And I just let it wash right over me. I was acting. I had written this thing. And doggone it, people were loving it. 
there was a girl that I had been really trying to date, and she had always kept us sort of as friends, but she came Saturday night and decided after the show that it was time to take our relationship to a whole nother level. <laughs> By Monday, I was a very happy thespian. <laughs> I slept in. I didn't even look at the newspaper till I got to the office. It was the afternoon. And there was a single column headline on the front of the metro section, man dies in house fire in Sulphur Springs. Michael O'Connor, 28, apparently fell asleep while smoking a cigarette. Police found a lot of beer cans around his feet. He had apparently been drinking heavily while smoking. I got in my car, I raced to his place. The, the walls were standing, they had police tape around it. And turns out it was the smoke and not the fire that killed him. Shelly, the little dog, had gotten away. I talked to a neighbor. She said the dog survived, but it went to the pound. So by then, 48 hours, the dog was dead too. I went back to my office. His brother was a reporter I knew in Cleveland, and I called him and just, I was crying. I just confessed everything. But he didn't yell at me. And he wasn't really mad. He said, Paul, you know, Michael had a troubled life. We always knew something was going to happen sooner or later. We're just glad to know he had a friend. Listen, would you be interested in speaking at his memorial? So there you have it. Michael O'Connor, the street poet of Hyde Park. Uh, I killed him. I killed his little dog, too. And I had kind of an ironic ending for this story that I was going to tell you, but last night I woke up and I was in my nice, warm, comfortable bed and my wife was sleeping peacefully right next to me. And we were in this two-story house that was like secure and safe and all the doors were locked. But I realized that deep in that dark forest, Michael O'Connor had opened another door for me and let me in front of a whole new audience. So I just want to close by saying, Michael, in a few seconds, all these people are gonna applaud. And I really wish there was some way that you could know they're applauding for you. Thank you very much. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Belly behind me now, and we just heard from Paul Wilborn, who you can find at wilbornwrites.com. 
Now they say in marketing that you should tell someone to do something 17 times before expecting them to do it. So hopefully this is the 17th time you're hearing me say pre-order the risk book at theriskbook.com. You complete and total motherfucker. Here is where Risk is coming next. Come out and see us, folks. On July 17th, we're in New York City at Caveat. That is the big book release party in New York. And on July 19th, we're in Boston at the Harvard Bookstore. That will be a book signing and book reading. On July 20th, we are at Arts at the Armory in Boston, technically at Somerville. That will be a Risk show. On July 26th, we're in San Francisco at Book Passage. That's a book signing and a book reading. On July 27th, we're in San Francisco at Swedish American Hall. That will be a risk show, and we're still taking pitches for that. On July 28th, we're in L.A. at the Bootleg Theater. It'll be the first time ever that I host the L.A. show at the Bootleg Theater, July 28th. That, again, will be a big book release show with people uh, from the book reading there. On August 1st, we're in Queens, New York at Astoria Bookshop. That's a book signing, book reading. On August 3rd, Detroit, Michigan, that is a uh, risk show. And we're still taking pictures for that at the Magic Bag. On August 9th, LaGrange, Illinois, Anderson's Bookshop. That's a book signing, book reading. On August 10th, Chicago, Illinois at Lincoln Hall. That is a risk show. Still taking pictures for that. On August 11th, Minneapolis at Brave New Workshop. Still taking pictures for that. On August 16th, Washington, D.C., Kramer Books and Afterwards Cafe. That's a book signing and book reading. On August 17th, Baltimore. We're at Creative Alliance. That's a risk show. Still taking pictures there. August 18th, Washington, D.C. at the Black Cat. That's a risk show. August 18th, we're also in L.A. at the Bootleg Theater again. September 6th, we're in Portland, Oregon at Revolution Hall. Still taking pictures. September 7th, we're in Seattle, Washington at the Vera Project. Taking pictures for that. September 8th, Vancouver. And September 20th at NYU Bookstore. That's a book signing and a book reading. In order to find out how to pitch us, just go to risk-show.com slash submissions. That page tells you all you need to know for how to pitch us your story. You could be a part of one of those shows, and we'd love to have you. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Today's people who have ordered the Risk book will be sung over the sound of the wheezing that I did in host segment two. People 
who have ordered the spunk. People who have ordered the spunk. There's Evelyn Vinyl from Mini Vinyl and Farron Real. There's Missy Martin and Ryan Katz and Jess Fogarty. There's Riley, Riley. There's Abram Weinberg and Mariah Stone, a.k.a. Marmar Stoner Pants. There's Adam Smith and Julie Heatherton, Heatherington. And there's Ashley Davison. There's Stephanie Carter and Kashi Rigby and late happy birthday to Dan Mall. There's Sally Watson and Hillary Kelman and Maddie Dell. And there's Cole Travis and Jake Ethan Stratton and Jen Carmack. There's Julie Bostic and Destiny Carrillo and Julie Menaguzzi. There's Ken Mogul and um, Brent Christie and happy birthday to his girlfriend Victoria Dean. There's Jonathan Halder and Catherine Dye. There's Brianna Greer and Catherine Van Halsema. There's Tanya Sample and Sarah Skilling. There's Brian Shapiro and Prem Tumkoset. There's Nathan Miller and Sally Joa Casio. There's Sarah Kramer and Hallie Birch. And happy birthday to her mom, Stacy Kyle. There's Kirsten Price and Ashley Bernard. There's Helena Spears and happy birthday to Melissa Walkley. There's Christian Stray and Kelsey Gibbons. There's Balin Spinal and Lee Carter. There's Harry Edwards and Felix Berry and Jane Eden and Lisa Cantrell. There's Sandra Longoria and Madison J. Olson. There's Jordan, Sarah Gusa, and Tracy Short. There's M. Seekins and that is... Oh! <laughs>